0: Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 15, 14, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the Executive Director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. It is a pleasure and delight to have you as part of our audience. If you've been blessed by this podcast or some other avenue of the Biblical Counseling Coalition's ministry, I encourage you to share our ministry with somebody else so that they can be blessed by it as well. It is truly our great joy to know that people are being blessed by, encouraged, sharpened, and pointed to Christ through the work that we do. If you've been blessed by this ministry, been encouraged, I also ask you to support us. We are largely and predominantly supported and financed through gifts of people like you who are blessed by and want to further the work of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. So jump online, sign up to give a recurring gift or send a special gift every once in a while to spur us on and to keep us moving forward in the work that God has called us to this episode is a sermon that was preached at my church by our pastor, Jeremy Pelham. And it was actually an ordination sermon where he was sending out one of the members of our church to go and be a pastor, and I was really encouraged how he focused his attention and our this new pastor's attention on what it means to be a pastor and what the calling of a pastor is to really push forward the love of Christ and emphasize Christ first and foremost and not get caught up in many of the other things in ministry that can distract us away from the centrality of Jesus. And I thought that message was so great for all of us in biblical counseling and just as Christians in general to remember who it is that we are Primarily about it is about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, I hope that you are encouraged, and and these principles may sound like they are lifting up or highlighting pastoral ministry and. Uh, But I want to encourage you, just because you're not in pastoral vocational ministry doesn't mean that these principles would not apply to you as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. So take them to heart, use them to encourage you and spur you on in your ministry and to keep our eyes set on Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy and are blessed by today's message.
1: Well, good morning, church family. Good morning. Brett, I understand you requested that last song. And I'm so oh, Stephanie. I'm so glad you did. What a privilege to gather on this special morning. Welcome, visitors. Please take your Bibles, each of you, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're placing our Exodus series on hold this morning because we have the extraordinary special privilege of ordaining and affirming Brett lutes, to pastoral ministry, and to send he and his wife, Stephanie, to the foreign lands of Colorado (laughs) to pastor. And we are so thrilled to be able to do that. Now, Brett and Stephanie have family not only in town from Colorado, but also from Michigan this morning. We've got a member of our church who is from Michigan, and I asked him one day, I said, you know, what's the stereotypical Michigander like? and he didn't miss a beat. I mean, it was just rolled right off of his lips. He said, well, handsome, (laughs) intelligent, charming. Actually, if you're here with Brett and Stephanie, would you just stand and let us welcome you? At the close of our service, Pastor Jeff is going to come and read a motion on behalf of the ordination council that sat and examined Brett for ordination several weeks back, and then you're going to be called upon to vote and to cast your affirmation to the recommendation that the ordination council has shared, and then we're going to send out, we're going to pray and send out Brett and Stephanie into this high calling of gospel ministry that the Lord has called them to, and so we've just got a special, special special service put together this morning. I'll also add that both of, both Brett and Stephanie's fathers are here this morning and they've given their lives to gospel ministry as well. And so they're going to pray over them at the end of the service also. And so welcome. If you've got your Bibles turned to 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, page 991 in your pew Bibles, you'll notice our sermon text is 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, but I'm going to actually read the entire first. chapter because it sets the context for this charge that Paul gives to Timothy as pertains pastoral ministry. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to pastor. And as he thinks about this pastoral ministry that Timothy will hold there at Ephesus, he gives a charge and i want to look at that this morning on this special occasion please stand church family in honor of the reading of god's word paul writes under the inspiration of the holy spirit this is what he writes paul an apostle of christ jesus by command of god our savior and of christ jesus our hope to timothy My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then you'll notice from our study of the 10 commandments, he just starts rambling, you know, rattling them off, starting in number five. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, number six. For the sexually immoral, number seven men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, number eight, perjurers, number nine, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of this occasion. We also thank you for the solemnity of the charge that's laid out before us here in First Timothy. I pray that you would use this to strengthen Christians, that we would have in mind what it is that you have called us to do. And Father, may we do it with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We commit this time into your hands and ask that you would be honored in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The gospel is the greatest, most glorious, most important, most life-giving message in all the world. We believe this. It is the most hopeful, most loving of all messages. It is divine in origin, it is matchless. It is, as Paul writes in Romans, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's no message like it. And it's true. It's not only a great story, it's a true story. It's rooted in human history. It took place in real space and in real time. It changes lives. Today, Jesus is alive. Today, his spirit is alive in us. Today, as we've gathered together in this place, he is here with us. Today, as we worship him, we're mindful of his promise. Behold, I'm coming soon, he said. I'm coming soon. Maybe today, you, you might not make it to Colorado <laughs> if he comes back today. But if he does, tarry. What are we to do? If he does tarry, what is the aim of pastoral ministry? We don't have to guess. It's one thing I love about having a book inspired by the Holy Spirit of God is that you don't have to make it up and you don't have to guess. We can look at the book and we can know this is from God and we can know exactly what we're supposed to do. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 as Paul is writing to Timothy, talking to him about what pastoral ministry is about, he says, The aim of our charge is love that arises or issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The end, the goal, the aim of our instruction is that Christians would love God and love others and do so with a pure heart a conscience sprinkled clean, as the author of Hebrews would say it, and a sincere faith. It's genuine, it's real. You truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you have that hope placed in him. That's the source of this loving God and loving others. And nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring this about in the life of the human heart. I wonder if it surprises you when you read in verse five, the aim of our charge is love. Like, why didn't he say the aim of our charge when he's talking to Timothy there in Ephesus? Why didn't he say the aim of our charge is you gotta give these people hope? Or the aim of our charge is faith. These are, these are, these are important things, aren't they? He says the aim of our charge is love that springs from a sincere Faith. And here I just want to pause and consider with you the fact that some of the most grand and sweeping and most staggering and glorious statements made in all of the scriptures are made surrounding this concept of love. As I walk through some of these just briefly in kind of an overview type of way, I think it'll make more sense why Paul writes to Timothy and says the aim of our charge is Is love, and why he doesn't say it's faith or why he doesn't say that it's hope. Maybe you're thinking about that great statement he made at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? It's love. Consider these sweeping statements that Jesus makes. He was once asked by a lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Staggering, isn't it? Comprehensive, sweeping. Here's another one. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, another very familiar one. Beloved, you who are loved, let us love one another. Listen to this for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. He goes on to say several verses later, 1 John four twenty if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or 1 Corinthians 13, another staggering, sweeping statement with respect to love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And you'll recall that the Corinthians were really taken up with the extravagant gifts. Like they were into the healings and they were into, you know, the giftings. They were into all of the tongues. And Paul says... You know, I know about those things. I can, I can talk to you about visions. I, I've had special visions, the third heaven that he talks about later, but then he pauses. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, but you want me to tell you something that's even more incredible than that? He calls it the still more excellent way. He said, it's when people love one another. That's why he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I mean, you walk out, say to the mountain, up, move. We don't have those in Florida, but maybe it's a building. You can talk to a building, move. If you can do that, but you don't have love, it means nothing. If I give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And the Spirit of God takes hold of a life. Love is the first and primary fruit of the Spirit. It's what we read in Galatians 5. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruits of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and on it goes. The first fruit is love. And so it's like, how do you know if the life of God is in the soul of man? How do you know if the spirit of Jesus Christ exists in another person? Well, the New Testament is so clear, you're going to see this thing called Christian love. Charity as it was known years ago. One of the reasons why I like Jonathan Edwards in spite of things that I disagree with. One of the reasons why I like him so much is because outside the biblical authors, he's nearly peerless on this very point. He says this, in the work of conversion, conversion, when somebody transfers from darkness to light, when somebody becomes a Christian, he says, the Holy Spirit renews the heart by giving it a divine temper, a new temperament of heart that flows out in love both to God and man? Do you have a new temperament? Are you still the same mean cuss you've always been? There's something that's changed from the inside out where you're standing back going, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. I just know I used to not like a whole lot of you and now I love you. I wanna give you. What do you attribute that to? Edwards calls it conversion when someone actually has the capacity to love another person and they're as astonished as the next guy. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just love, you know, it's the Lord at work in the heart. So Edwards writes, if your heart is full of love, it will find vent. It just like works its way out. You will find a way to express your love and deeds. When a fountain abounds in water, it will send forth streams. This is what Jesus taught us, isn't it? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's like if there's love that, that's not just been put there by you, like you're not trying to fake it and put it on. If it's authentic and it's been put there by the Lord, you know what it's going to do? It's just going to bubble out. Like it's just gonna, it's gonna flow out on people. And that's why there's this something really, really unique about Christians. This is why we so emphasize the heart. This is why when you, you, when you detect like little, little bits of wrath and anger and malice and envy and bitterness, the, the Christian faith teaches us like, you attack that at the heart, why? Because it's gonna bubble out. If you don't attack it at the heart, praying and killing it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, like it's gonna flow out on other people that I know you care about. It's gonna flow out on your family. It's gonna flow out on your coworkers. It's gonna flow out on your friends in the exact same way. If the spirit of God has done this incredible work of regeneration and placed love in a heart that was at one time selfish, that too is just gonna flow out like you can't contain it. It's just there. And you don't take any credit for it either, do you? It's like, where did that come from? I don't know, God, he put it there. That's why he says, it's. I mean, it's just so radical. When it's there, it flows out. It even bubbles out on our enemies. That's why I say it's just staggering. What the the Christian faith teaches about love is absolutely peerless. There's nothing like it. It's matchless. We we walk through these grand, like sweeping statements about love. You, You end up getting to the point where you say, you know, you put your nose in this for a little while. You say, there's nothing on the planet like this. It's so unique. Jesus said, everybody loves their friends. There's nothing supernatural or divine about that. But when God places his love in your heart, he said in Matthew 5, it even bubbles out on your enemies. Do you see why I say it's so sweeping? It's it's staggering. And nobody demonstrated this as profoundly as Jesus did, as we sang about earlier. Even, Even while he was on the cross, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's like... You got the nails, because we're all, you know, we're all responsible for the death of Jesus in some sense because of our sin. It's like the nails that put him on the cross are jingling in our pockets, and he's saying, Father, forgive them. Romans 5:8, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5:10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his own Son. Therefore, you come to 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, and it should come as absolutely no surprise that Paul tells Timothy the aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, this is not your aim, then you don't have a shot at pastoring. You really don't. Your church is not going to be a place that anyone wants to intend, including you. Like, you don't want to go there. You're not just like, oh, man, I got to show up. If you don't get this right, you won't want to be there. So make it your aim from day one. Teach your people to love God with all of their heart, supremely, and love one another sacrificially. If your church grabs hold of that vision, I promise you it'll have an evangelistic impact as well. John chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Now that's a high standard, isn't it? Jesus says, as I have loved you. How did he love, well, we just saw, didn't we? So you are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's like leave the gimmicks to some other church, leave the parlor tricks, leave all the fads, leave all that stuff to other churches, but you, Paul said in Romans 12, let love be genuine, like you be genuine. doesn't mean you gotta feel it all the time, but you have to mean it. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. It's gotta be from the heart. One of the things I love about Hurstborn Baptist Church is that I can invite people here and I know, I know they're gonna be loved. I honor you for that church family. You set a great example in that you warmly welcome people and you love them well. And you know what we hear when we meet with people who come and gather at this place? They say, I can sense the spirit of God in this place. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because you're loving God and loving other people and they know it. They're like, that's not normal. Like you don't get that in the world corinthians had a taste for the extravagant they wanted to see the miraculous signs and paul said you want something extravagant learn to love god supremely and let love others sacrificially and here i can't i've been listening to this all week so don't judge me for this but i've been listening to Dion warwick like 12 times mayor looked over me like i'd gone yumpy at one point you know the song don't you I'm not even, well, okay, I'll say it. I'm not gonna sing it. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I mean, it's sentimental, right? It's the only thing that there's far too little of. And she's right. She's actually right. It's just that the world's vision of love is so shallow. It doesn't have that gospel content to it. And we've got the content. Like we can backfill that. Like you use the word love. Let me tell you what it actually means and show you how Jesus is the ultimate and supreme example of this kind of love. And so you can listen to a song like that and be like, hmm, you know, I like that. But then just in your mind, fill it in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the charge. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, so that's the charge, some encouragement. I want to underline how not only radical this is from a teaching perspective, but just think for a minute, okay, who's writing this? Just let it settle in upon your mind and hearts. who is writing this? This is the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. I doubt that anyone in this room has been a more violent or obnoxious religious fanatic than Saul of Tarsus. I doubt you even know anyone who was a more violent religious fanatic than Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion. None of us would have wanted to be anywhere near this guy. The fact that Paul, formerly Saul, is writing this is simply astonishing. Unless you think I'm being too hard on him, here's his own testimony before King Agrippa. Acts 26, verse nine through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried. Isn't it? I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It's like, Paul, Saul, what are you doing this weekend? And he would say, I'm going over Damascus. What are you going to do in Damascus? I'm going to rage against Christians and try to make them blaspheme the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And if they don't do it, I'm going to cast my vote that they might get killed. And he did it with with, uh, Stephen, as you know. I mean, we would call this guy a terrorist, we would not want to be. We would not want you. It's like I need you to go have lunch with Saul. Oh Lord, can I do anything but go meet with that guy? That's exactly how you know on the road to Damascus, Ananias or Anas, uh, responded. He was a brash zealot. In fact, he says here, "I was an insolent man, rude and arrogant, completely blind to the way of Christ." Even on the Damascus Road, when he, you know, he's, he's going that direction and all of a sudden this light appears, you know? he doesn't have any idea who Jesus is. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? Who are you? And Jesus says, it's me whom you are persecuting. He didn't even know who he was. So completely blind. And and beyond just a worldly blindness, it was like a worldly blindness. He was twice blinded with this kind of religious conviction. What I'm doing is right. So he felt noble about what he was doing. It's a double blindness and doubly dangerous. It's like ISIS level resistance to Jesus. But in a moment, Jesus melted his heart and removed that blindness in an instant. It's so incredible. It's so, I mean, it, Outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the conversion of Saul is one of the most extraordinary stories in the Bible. And you just read it and I, you know, your heart just kind of jumps a little bit because you're like, man, this is the power of the gospel. This is the power that Jesus has to change a heart and change a life. And I want you to notice the logic in verse 15 and 16. It's like, if the gospel can change Saul, there's hope for every single one of us. That's the reason why this is in the Bible. And I want you to see this with your own eyes. So look at verse 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This, like, Paul uses that formula a number of times to say, this is really important, pay attention. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. It's like, why did God save that guy? Why, why, why Saul of Tarsus? He tells us, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We're supposed to read of the conversion of Saul and go, man, I don't, I'm never giving up. I'm gonna believe the gospel. I've got hope because if the Lord will save that guy, he'll save me, he'll save my family member, he'll save my friend that I've been praying for, he'll save that coworker because he saved Saul. And that's the power of the gospel in him. The other one that I think about when I think about a a radical conversion is John Newton. John Newton was, you know, we read that word enslaver earlier when we were going through the list of commandments. He was an enslaver. In his own conversion testimony, he too said that what came out of his mouth nonstop was just hate and obscenities. He just, like he would, it's like John Newton was the kind of guy you didn't want to run into because it was lookout. Man, this guy is just hot and angry, and he's got malice in his heart, and he's just, he's just dumping it on every single person that he meets. But he's also the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He put a verse on his bed, this one who trafficked in human bodies. He put a verse over his bed. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. His epitaph on his uh, tombstone, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, A servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Do you hear that? Does your heart not jump when you think about the power of the gospel to change someone's heart from the inside out? And when you think about the power of the gospel to do that, should we ever give up on anyone in our lives? The answer is no. A total transformation from the inside out. What I love about what we're doing today is that, you know, if we're honest about it for just a minute, the world is a totally, totally broken place. I mean, we're gathering together and our joy is full in Jesus this morning and that's good. That's really good. But when you start thinking about everything that's going on in the world, this world's pretty, I mean, we just, it's broken. There's a war going on right now. And some people are afraid it's gonna turn into World War Three. There's inflation through the roof. Well, not quite there yet, but it looks like it could get there. Gas over $6 a gallon. People who are hopeless, people who are broken, people who are waking up this morning and tomorrow morning and the next day, wondering if they can even get out of bed. And it's like, what do we do to make an impact? Like, how do we, how do we help? How do we love people well? What is it that we do? Well, I'll tell you exactly what we're going to do. We're going to ordain a man to gospel ministry and give him this precious gift, this story, this gospel, and say, go share it with the people in Colorado and lead them to share it in their community and send missionaries all over the world to share it. It's the greatest and most noble work you can ever be part of. I believe that with all of my heart. All the other patches that exist, the political patches, those are outside-in patches. The gospel is a work from the inside out. It's a transformed heart from the inside out. It's a work of God. And we gather around Brett this morning to say, you and Stephanie, go. Go and share the hope of the gospel with every single person you meet. And teach your church family to love one another and love God. And go and share this gospel with everyone they bump into Everyone they meet. Well, Brett, dear brother, that's the charge, and that's the encouragement, but now a warning. And this is a warning from the scriptures. The warning is this. Don't ever take your eye off the ball. Don't ever take your eye off Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that has this kind of saving power. That's why we want to point everyone we meet to Jesus including believers, including believers. You sit down and say, you know, you're talking to a church member and they're like, hey, you know, this is going on, that's going on. You say, hey, you know, I wanna tell you about Jesus. They're like, yeah, 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 I know about Jesus. You know, I wanna talk about something else. Like, no, I'm pointing you to Jesus because they need the hope of the gospel week in and week out, just like unbelievers need the hope of the gospel. You want everything you do to point to Jesus. I mean, Chase could come up here and tell some great stories. He's got some good stories. He's a natural story. I got one or two jokes. They're kind of funny. But that's not why we gather together. We gather together to point one another to Jesus Christ. We gather together to be reminded of the gospel. And look at verse five. I want you to see this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from us pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But then verse six, immediately followed with this. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. Isn't that fascinating? I want you to think of the worst driver you know, but don't say their name out loud because you've got a lot of family that you love around you right now. <laughs> And you sort of, you see this person behind the wheel and they're just erratic. You know, they're bouncing lane to lane. They're all over the place. And you think, man, they're gonna hurt somebody. They're gonna hurt themselves, but who else are they gonna hurt? And that's where Paul's saying, listen, these aren't just vain speculations and myths and arguments about genealogies and discussions. People think, no big deal. And because they could even say to themselves, these are Bible conversations, aren't they? They're just speculating about this myth or that genealogy or whatever, but what's the problem? They've taken their eye off the ball. They're swerving. They've wandered into vain discussions. Unless we think it's no big deal, that's why I think it's so important that Paul continues this thought in verse 18. He gives a little digression about the law there in the middle, but... After he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, certain persons swerving from these have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law. He picks that same thought up again in verse 18, and I want you to see this. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. In other words, Paul's reminding Timothy of his ordination that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then he picks up that theme of what happens if you get away from this? What happens if you take your eye off the ball? By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Both of these guys will show up again in the pastoral epistles in 2 Timothy as well. And he says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's such a big deal. And so I say to you, dear brother, keep your eye on the ball. Stand up every single Sunday and call your folks to repentant faith in Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in the externals. People wear their faith differently. Aim at the heart. Stand up every Sunday and summon the wonderful folks of Generations Church to love God supremely and love others sacrificially all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the gospel and thank you for the clarity. Thank you for the priority. Thank you for laying out for us what is of first importance and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures that forms in us genuinely loving hearts hearts that love you supremely and hearts that love others sacrificially, all in the name of our great King, Jesus of Nazareth. Father, I pray that you would bless this brother and his going. I pray that you would bless he and Stephanie. I pray that you would bless his family. And we thank you for the privilege of sending him out from Hurstbourne Baptist Church this morning. All this we pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.